Hi, my name is Jesse Cannon, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great records. I've produced over 1,000 albums, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records' Inside the Album podcast, where we get to go deeper on how some of Atlantic's artists have made the amazing songs in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the artists and the team behind them that helped craft this amazing music and get to know the little secrets that go into making an amazing album. On this episode, we're going to go deep on Wallow's debut EP, Spring. You don't often hear about bands meeting because their moms met online, but that's exactly what happened over a decade ago in the San Fernando Valley. The trio Wallows seems to be a lot of things that are unexpected. In my time with them, I was blown away by how authentic and fun they were. In a world ripe with think pieces on how millennials are nothing but affected personalities, much like the filter on an Instagram camera, Wallow's honest selves seem to shine through in everyone they encounter. When you hear their music, you hear this too. They are some fun California boys singing about the joys of youth as they experience them, and their music feels exactly like what they're singing about. You can hear the charm of friends having fun around a laptop as their songs take shape, making music that gets a character-filled production that feels unique and great to listen to, all the while hearkening back on influences that span across genres and decades. Their debut EP came out this April, and we talked to them to find out how they got here, what made the EP so great, along with what's next for them as they navigate the path of debut EP into debut LP. First, Brayden is going to catch us up on how we got here with them kind of started playing music when we were pretty young guys. I mean, I met Dylan when I was nine. He was like nine as well, basically. You know, we, we became friends through like like our moms, <laughs> which sounds funny, but they met online because we both came from like the Midwest. Like I'm from Ohio, he's from Indiana, and they met because we moved to LA. We kind of just started bonding over classic rock music, like Beatles, Zeppelin, you know, that's kind of like where that started from and where it stemmed. And then we started like writing songs when we were like 10, 11. We started this music program called Join the Band and Met Cole. And then, yeah, it basically, you, you, they bring kids together and teach them songs, like three songs. And then you perform them at an iconic, like, L.A. venue, like the Whiskey, Roxy, those kind of things. And uh, we did that, met each other. And then after that, we were like, oh, we should start a band, like, like legit band. And then we're like, Cole, you should be in that legit band, said legit band. You're now going to hear from the band member, Cole. Yeah, we were like 12 at that point in the timeline. We started under one one name at first that will remain unmentioned. <laughs> you can find it somewhere. You can if you dig. And then played a bunch of shows in LA, started writing original music. Dylan and Brayden had been writing original music since they were like when you guys first met. Is that am I is that wrong? That's right. Margarita Taco when Margarita that Taco. That was our first song. Yeah, our first song was Margarita Taco and Mr. Biggers and his grandfather clock. That was the same writing session. The session. <laughs> the yeah. official session. The official session. Yeah, but then uh, played shows in LA. It was doing it, was doing it. Changed the band name for the first time. Something new. Just another brutal name. We won't talk about that one either. You can also find that. You can also cute. find that online. And this is about to be Dylan telling the story. Then last year we decided, you know, there was kind of a year of in between where we knew we didn't like our band name and we knew we were going to change it, but yet we just still kept playing a show here and there as that old name. We're like, we're going to change this soon. And then last year we decided to hop in the studio, Nameless, and we just like recorded a few songs that ended up being the four singles we put out before our EP, like I said, without a name. And during that session, we're like, well, we should probably pick a name and just roll with it. And Wallows is a like a term that Braden had had around for a while, whereas originally we thought we were going to call an album Wallows or something. But Wallows is a, it, it's a famous skate spot in Hawaii. 
which is already cool enough as it is to like have your to us like to have your band name be kind of named after like skate culture but also if you look up the word wallow on google or anything there's pretty amazing definitions for it more than you would think and if you pair any of them with like the experience of listening to music it's really really cool so we thought it was an interesting kind of band name to just have anyway so we decided on that during the session and then um just as soon as we were done mixing like one of the songs just put it out here we are like nearly a year later exactly what tomorrow's a year later or two days from now anyway this will be later when you hear this but at this moment in time we're exactly a year old wallows but yeah anyway now we're now we're just doing our thing the term wallows became <laughs> the term <laughs> so after that recording session they got the music out to the world by putting it up online yeah it was self-release we just put it out and like found f figured out how to submit it to like <laughs> streaming services and just did it and then were incredibly overwhelmed by the people that immediately kind of jumped onto it we did not expect anything you know you always hope for the best but like we we had no idea i mean i remember we had like it was really weird we started to have emails from people in the in industry the next morning I mean, that was like really super weird for us cole knew all, had all his knowledge about how the music industry works so he was our pre-manager he guided us through all of our meetings setting up all that shit so like cole is uh super our hero in, in that time oh, and, thanks, and always man. but we ended up you know taking meetings and talk to labels and all that stuff and like super crazy process that now when you look back you're like well that was crazy but at the time it doesn't feel like anything you like see bands or artists talking about the time they were talking to labels or whatever setting up their team and you go that sounds like such an insane process but then we're doing it and it just felt so just kind of what it was so what we haven't gotten to is how they found their way to atlantic records i'm going to let them describe that a bit well what's funny is after we put out our song um i believe the the first person we met with was austin rice oh yeah yeah from atlantic yeah yeah yeah. he was the first like okay so i am in this music industry program down at usc at school in la and so like having that ability to like sort through all the bs that was coming into like our email inbox was invaluable but austin was the first legit lunch meeting we ever took when he like happened to be in la one weekend which is crazy how that came back around and i didn't he i mean angie right here didn't he tip us off to you like he like emailed you about us too andrew is our andrew. wonderful manager andrew friedman loves pancakes <laughs> <laughs> I, I think i don't know but but shortly after that we met andrew and just kind of came together i then talked to their a and r man austin rice to get his side of the story i think first got in touch probably around april of last year 2017 so they put out their first song pleaser and yeah i mean after the first place i heard it was on i think actually spotify on the the viral charts and sort of make up make a point to check that every once in a while just to you know comb through and see if anything catches my ear and i think just having the list i think playing in the background the pleaser jumped out to me and i was you know definitely intrigued and interested so dug in a little bit more there wasn't at the time a ton of info i think they maybe had like two instagram photos up so i heard the song did some digging i don't think they had a ton of info but you know, reached out to the email, had to follow up a couple of times, but they finally got back to us. And, you know, from there, just sort of kept in touch. I think hopped on a phone call, learned a little bit more background, how the band had been playing together for a lot of years and then sort of re and yeah, we just kind of hit it off, had a great initial conversation. You know, the music really stood out to me. I sort of learned more about the guys and Dylan's background in acting and Braden as well and Cole and them all sort of being childhood friends, meeting in L.A. and then starting the band. But yeah, it was really just hearing Pleaser. The music really stood out to me when I first heard it. Uh, eventually ended up flying out to L.A. They didn't have a manager at the time, no team or anything. They just kind of were getting hit up by a couple label people and, you know, definitely starting to get interest once P Pleaser kind of picked up a little bit after they 
released it. The signing process took a little while, so I probably met them in April of last year, and they they officially signed in January of this year. So you know, over that process, you know, saw them play a couple live shows. You know, that was another you know real confirmation that like this was a band we needed to sign after seeing a live show genuine energy and excitement and enthusiasm that just sort of came through in the music they were playing you could tell they were up there like loving every moment of it and like really quality players with like natural chemistry between all of them so a lot of times we'll see bands that sort of put out their first first couple of tracks and you know the live show takes a second to get there but these guys have been playing together for you know almost 10 years now even though they're quote-unquote a new band so yeah there was just sort of this natural chemistry that really came through and I think the fans responded to that and I was blown away seeing the first live show Next, I talked to Katie Green about what she saw in them. She's a marketing director at Atlantic Records. The thing that strikes me the most about Wallows is their live show. Just in general, their kindness as human beings. They're really wonderful, wonderful people. But yeah, their live shows are really amazing. They have a lot of young fans, which is exciting to me because I find that the indie rock is not so popular with young people these days. It's really cool to walk into one of their shows and see teenagers and college students really uh, enjoying the band and, and rocking out to some awesome new music by a young rock band. Um, and, you know, they play a couple covers, uh, including Violent Femmes, Blister in the Sun. Um, and, you know, seeing, like, teenage girls uh, moshing to Blister in the Sun makes me so warm and fuzzy inside. It's really refreshing to me that they're able to to draw that fan base in in such a big way. I mean, they've been selling out venues all over the country. So that's, and in London, actually. So that's really exciting to me. So after they joined forces with Atlantic, I wanted to know why make an EP instead of an LP? Yeah, no, then shortly after the team was in place, we started uh, planning out the EP vibe. Yeah, I mean, I remember we had these conversations because I, I know in, in the beginning there was talks that we do an album, like no EP. And it, it was kind of just a decision we had to make because, uh, you know, there's other things that we do that take us away from the band for a little bit. So we released these four songs and I think the original plan was just go straight for an album and have that out in like April. But then, you know, we decided that, you know, we, we kept writing more songs, you know, how that goes. And we thought that it would be strategically better to possibly hold off the whole album cycle, you know, like touring and whatnot until a little later. So we thought, well, we're not just not going to put out music for a year or whatever. So we decided to put some of our favorite songs that kind of had a cohesive vibe together on an EP and release that. And I think that was a smart move. And we only really learned from it, to be honest. Like, yeah. I love the EP, but I feel like... Yeah. I feel like it was a good step. We worked with John Congleton. Great, great guy. Amazing guy. It was just like the first time we were in like a setting with someone like that, you know, and like a huge producer that we love and admire. So you kind of just, well, now I think I learned just like sounds I like, sounds I don't like, things I'd um, want to hear more of or less of, just all that fun stuff. And I feel like, you know, you hear where you want to go. And I feel like that's a good thing. I was just about saying that's exactly what our, like our goal was because we, it, it, you know, Yes, that was a reason that we did an EP before the album was definitely because of the timeline. And like, if we had put, if we recorded an album and we were putting that out, we wouldn't have time to do a proper cycle for it at this most likely because of our individual schedules. So there's that reason. But then there's also 
We were like, we need to learn. Just you were saying, we learned a lot. And that was what we were thinking beforehand. Like, we need to learn. We need to go into the studio with a producer, see how it goes, figure out what we like and don't like, figure out the process before we go and, and like haphazardly jump into an album. And, you know, we don't have many regrets off the EP. Like, if you're always going to have regrets in something you do in any art you make. But we don't have that many. But, like, you never know. You're like, we could regret every choice we made in the EP. And not that an EP is less important than an album, but it's, like, it's less songs. It's, like, you can go in and experiment and just, like, kind of dip your toes in and figure things out a little bit. Um, whereas we knew we, we held over some songs for the album because we were like, that's going to be great in an album setting with more songs. These songs will be immediate, like a perfect little taste tester, you know, for what we feel like we can do. Um, and I feel like, like Braden said, we did learn a lot. So that was our goal. And I think we accomplished it for ourselves because now we're like, okay, we get the process. We're going to go in and we know what we like and don't like. We're going to, you know, yeah, make it I, better. I think all of the experience that we gathered the back half of last year and the beginning of this year, like we, we've done so many new things that even though we've been a band since we were like 12 and 13, that we had never done, but like we recorded with the pro producer, we uh, toured for the first time, you know, so like we gathered all this experience in order to just maximize because we care about the record at the end of the day. So the record will be like at its maximum potential now that we've done all these things. The first decision they made about when they were going to do this EP is that they wanted to work with producer John Congleton. John has a truly insane discography that's unprecedented in both quality and variety. You may know his work with St. Vincent, Explosions in the Sky, Blondie, Lana Del Rey, Amanda Palmer, Best Coast, Chelsea Wolfe, Manchester Orchestra, and so many more. We then discussed what reasons the band had to choose him and why he was the right man for the job. A plenty of reasons. All of his work has inspired. Like before we even knew that John Congleton was the producer, we would show each other his production work and be like, oh, listen to these drum sounds. Like listen to this like rip in guitar, whatever. Even before, like Cole said, we knew John was going to do it. I was obsessed with Always All Mantis Socialites, which he produced. And I was just like, I want our music to like have this, like not this vibe, but you know, th th these sounds are so great. Like St. Vincent sounds are so great. All the stuff he's worked on is so great that I, I was just like immediately super down when Dylan like brought him, I think you brought him into the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I remember thinking like listening to, cause I've listened to St. Vincent for a few years now, just being like, oh my God, one day to work with this guy would be crazy. Like listen to this music one day we'll be, you know, that kind of stuff. So, and it's, and St. Vincent is, is so advanced and it sounds so amazing. And like, that's not how I would have ever pictured our EP or like album sounding, but I, I didn't like, so we were discussing producers to potentially that we, that we'd want to work with on the EP going online and like, and like brainstorming, coming up with a lot of ideas. And then I, and I listened to dreams tonight by always when it came out last year off of Age socialites. And I was like, man, who produced this? Saw John Congleton. I was like, no way. Like this is the same guy who does St. Vincent. And then I ended up looking at John's entire like catalog. And I was like, this is, I didn't realize that he does all of these things. And he, you can tell that he is kind of a chameleon in the artist that he works with. He doesn't have like his particular sounds that when you hear an artist, you know, it's from that producer, which is, which is great in its own right. But like, I'm more, we were more interested in like having an artist that can like find a way to just make what we are sound better and like, and take it to the next level, not necessarily make it what they only, they want it to be or to sound like how they make all other music sound by hearing the differences and all the stuff that he works on, I think that's what we were like, this is our number one pick. Like this guy, all of his stuff sounds amazing and so different from each other. And all he does is elevate an artist from what they already sound like. So we were just like, this is our number one pick. Yeah, he's super versatile. And our inspiration is coming from a lot of different places. So he uh, shapeshifts. He's like our father. 
(laughs) (laughs) Our weird uncle. (laughs) It's funny that they joke about John being their weird uncle, because one of the things he liked about them is their youth. Young people, uh, because they're, you know, they sort of remind you of white, you know, of white when you were excited about it, you know, everything, when everything was really fresh and you can kind of like experience the whole process, uh, in a fresh new way. Um, I mean, I like working with people who've been doing it for a long time too, but it's a different experience and, uh, there's, you know, they're more cynical and whatnot. Whereas young people, they can't, they can't help it because every experience is, is, uh, new for them that, that, you know, it's impossible for them to be cynical. And, uh, so I was attracted to the music, but I was also just attracted to the fact that they were just young, young dudes. I want to talk to the band about some songs specifically. So first we broke down how the song Ground came to being. So Ground uh, originally started out as um, uh, a guitar riff that I wrote, inspired by Sandy Alex G, who's an artist that we love. I remember listening to Rocket, blown away, immediately went to my room, like put it on like a little stand and like try to write something looking at it, because that's usually how I write music. I look at an album and try to write what I think could have been on that album, if that makes sense. <laughs> So I started uh, writing that riff, like the ground lead riff. I remember sending it to Dylan and Cole, and nothing really happened from it. They were just like, "Oh, cool," and I was like, "Oh, okay." I'm just kidding. But then I was like, "Oh, cool, whatever." And then like, uh, I thought it was great for the record. Yeah, right, right. No, yeah. yeah, for sure. But then I kind of forgot about it. And then like literally like like five six months later, I'm in New Mexico and they're in LA, and they send me like this thing that they made off my old demo of that guitar part, and it was like not like this swamp. Uh, folk riff anymore that I originally wrote. It was like this R&B, like Frank Ocean style song, and I was like, "Whoa, what?" Cole added like the staccato guitar rhythm riff, uh, rhythm section over my riff, and then it kind of just formed in that way. And then the chorus was actually a song that I started playing on Dylan's pool table, and Dylan came up with the melody while I was playing the chords. And then um, the bridge came from like the night before we started demoing the songs. I was listening to Steve Lacey. And then that bridge kind of came together. And then Dylan just like slayed the melody and lyrics on it. I don't know how those came to be. Like, I mean, the lyrics, I just, I, w- I didn't want them to really make sense when you heard them. I wanted them to just kind of like take snapshots in your mind, like, and just make a little portrait of just life and growing up and like nostalgia and just like fooling around with your friends, making stupid decisions, whatever it is. That's what I wanted you to have images. I wanted to it to evoke whatever your personal kind of like memories are. Like, I think a theme that we love at least, at least through our first album to have, because it's just a, a, a thing that we're going through right now at the age we're at, is like the fear of leaving your youth, you know, and like entering adulthood and just not wanting to lose or let go of the stupid things that we do growing up or just the mundane things that we love about our childhood. Like I would give anything to go back to hanging out with these dudes when we were 13, playing classic rock covers at 13 years old because it was so much fucking fun. And like, it's just those kind of things you're like, ah, like I don't want to not be able to do those things anymore. And you're just, it's the idea of entering adulthood is really scary, but also really exciting at the same time. But I just kind of want that to be the theme of the album. But it was particularly inspired by Frank Ocean's magazine, Boys Don't Cry, which I actually referenced in the song that he made very limited copies of. And I and I have one. I, Braden has one as well. I, I remember I wrote the lyrics while just only looking at that magazine. I was just flipping. I, if I couldn't come up with a line, I'd flip to the next page and look at all the images in this. Ma- it's the most impressive thing. Like he made 
Blonde and Endless. And the day that Blonde came out in like three magazine shops or four across the country and like in, in the US and in London, filled up magazine stores with like these free copies of Boys on Crime magazine. And it's just like these snapshots of his life in between when he made Channel Orange and Blonde, like during the process of making the album. And it's just like this 380 page huge book like of just the most beautiful images that he took or his friends took with lyrics and everything and I literally was just like I want ground to feel like this magazine when you listen to it and so every day in the studio too I'd bring my towards the end I'd bring my boys don't cry magazine and just put it on the couch and just look at it and be like okay we're writing we're recording let's look at this magazine that's why I'm like ride with the wolves at night straight out of boys don't cry it's just like do stupid things like just like out of the images you see in this magazine right here that's kind of what I wanted it to to be yeah, so in the studio, we um, we actually kind of recorded the whole the whole demo we made, like just how we made it. We recorded the drums that way. We recorded the guitars that way. A funny story, actually. We were doing the drums, and we recorded the drums, called it his drum track, and we go to do the guitar for ground, and, we go, and I do the rhythm. I do the rhythm guitar, and then I go to do the lead riff. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. And then, because we've already spent like, you know, a day on this, like a long time, because we only had eight days. And um, I'm like, I was freaking out suddenly before I told, I was like, oh my God. I was like sweating. I was like, oh my God. And, and then I'm like, John. And he's like, what? I'm like, I was like, we 100% recorded this too fast. And he's like, wait, why? And I was like, the riff is swinging. He's like, what are you talking about? And like, I'm like, the riff is like, do, 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 do. But it sounded like, do, 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 do. Like it sounded like that. And I was like, because when I was tracking, I was like, this is not right. I was like, this is not right. And I was freaking out. And I was like, John, we have to go record the whole drums again. Like everything, this is not right. And then Cole saves the day. Last minute. He goes, dude, you're actually like playing the rhythm wrong. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you were like missing a beat. So if you play it on the beat, it won't swing. I was like swinging the rhythm. And I was like, oh my God, Cole, I love you. (laughs) And then he did the rhythm. He went in and did it. And I was like, yes. (laughs) It was sweet sigh of relief. It was like last second. Like John was getting ready to like scrap everything. Cole's like, actually, (laughs) (laughs) I know what it is. Um, But anyway, then after we did that, uh, it all came together. And then the things that John suggested were more about cutting out certain things. So on the second verse, it goes to just bass, drum, and guitar riff. I mean, uh, drums and guitar riff. And that usually was still full band. So John edited out some of that stuff to make it just that. So John just kind of did little things like that to, to keep the song interesting. Um, yeah, I would say yeah. that every decision that John made in the studio is a decision that we are now look back on and go, thank God. Oh, literally, like, yeah. Seriously, we're like, oh, thank God that happened. We didn't do that this way. So that's why we're even more excited to get back in the studio with him and just have him like do even more of that. <laughs> yeah, and then like, going into the album, I think knowing that the EP suggestions he made were just on point, we'll be able to trust him way more. Because when he first brought up certain little changes, we were all like, what? Like, are you, are you sure yeah, I remember about, like, really? we were like, really? Like, trumpets at the beginning, like, okay, like, and then we'd go with it, and it did definitely. Yeah, it's like, yeah. now I can't imagine them any other way, or the way exactly. they were. Yeah. And if there's anything we learned about John in particular, it's just like, there is a reason why he is who he is. Like, in terms of just his mind, and, and just every idea he has. It's like, no wonder you're so smart and successful. The one song I think that he didn't have... Um, anything to do on or say was Pictures of Girls. That was when he was like, oh, the arrangement's pretty cool. We were like, oh. We're like, oh. <laughs> we're like, really? That's when right. we thought there would be a lot of yeah, notes on. Yeah, we thought there'd be a lot of notes, but he's like, no, this one's interesting. And I was like, cool. The funny thing about talking to John about all of this is he thought all the songs were in really good condition. He had this to say, though, about Ground. The only thing I really remember about Ground, they had put that song together pretty well. I remember I had suggested like a, a different drum beat in one part. And I remember, like, I remember really trying to trying to push for the guitar, like, riff in the song to be, like, 
like have a really signature sound. I don't know if we really ended up with one that was really memorable or not, but like that's, I guess other people's, it's their judgment at this point. But like, I remember we really looked a lot for like the right kind of sound for the guitar to have. I remember the opening lyric of that song, Inverted Narcissist. I remember, uh, I think it was Dylan came in and said, what do you think about this lyric? Inverted narcissist. And I was like, I love it. I remember that being a discussion. And I remember, I remember there being a lot of talk about the feel of that song, about how they didn't want it to swing, like, you know, which was, was sort of tricky because it's sort of, if you play the song without thinking, you just naturally swing it. But there was a lot of discussion about trying to keep it really stiff and unswung. And now I'd like to pause this program and tell you for a minute about what you can expect with the rest of the season of Inside the Album. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new. I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Sun. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm more like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. Like first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No. And Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. She was only 17 Oh, why are girls in Songs always seventeen. She was from a movie scene. Next, I talked to the band about how their song "Nineteen Eighties Horror Film" came to be. This is a song I kind of just like fumbled around in my room with. Um, I was listening to the Stone Roses album. And for some reason, that was like the first thing I played after listening to it was just the riff. And then it kind of slowly turned into like a Norwegian Wood kind of style. I always thought that'd be interesting to have a song that's kind of like a story. Like, I've always loved Norwegian Wood because it's like about, you know, going to someone's house and like burning down her house and like this whole thing. And so I was like, oh, that'd be cool if there was like a story. And I just remember this, like, I had no idea what the song was going to be about. No idea what the ending was going to be. And then just kind of started singing it. And then um, somehow, some way, turned into about being about horror movies. And then somehow being that she's not into guys at the end. I don't know how that happened, but I was like, oh, it rhymes. I know that's funny, I guess. I thought that was cool. And it was funny. I saw this girl covered it on in, on uh, like Twitter. She posted a video of her covering it at like a coffee shop in front of like 30 random people. Yeah, she covered it at a coffee shop and everyone laughs at the end. Oh, and no I'm like, coffee That's shop. awesome. And I'm like, what? Yes. Holy guac. Um, <laughs> this was a song that kind of came together as just like me and a, and a guitar. That's how we play it live. And then we we're in the studio and we knew that we did not want that to be the case because we thought after a while that 
you know, it could just get boring if you already know the story and the song, like just acoustic. I mean, it works for some songs, but we're like, you know what? Let, let's try to make it more interesting. And we kind of always thought that'd be the case to like have like horror movie sounds in it, whatever, whatever. The original idea too was that I wanted to do the the take all in one take. So I wanted just, I wanted my guitar and vocals to be at the same time. I wanted no like cutting in, like no perfect vocal. No metronome. No metronome. I just wanted it to be like as raw as it could possibly be. And if there's like a, a weird note or a weird flub, like or whatever, whatever, I wanted it to be in there because like whatever. <laughs> whatever, whatever. But anyway, whatever. It, it, after we recorded the song, that's when the fun stuff happened. John busted out these crazy things. Like I don't know if you guys want to take it away because this is like where it gets... We could go like in chronological order of the song. I mean, first we layered like electric guitar reverb under it under the main acoustic guitar playing. You played just the reverb, right? Just just the reverb, not the actual attack, which you can hear. And there's one time where Braden plays a major seventh chord rather than just like the regular major chord. So if you like listen really carefully, it's like a little bit like weird one time, but like kind of backs in it, but it like really works. There's synth, synth bass, Mellotron sounds. Yeah, like John started doing, um, what was he doing like though? In the sub, in the base, some, everything was that. It was this like Korg, yeah, like MS twenty synth, yeah, I think. This like, yeah, yeah. And he started like doing all these sounds. I remember I was laying on the couch and I heard him, and I, I I couldn't see him at this moment, and I heard these sounds, and I was like, "What is happening?" He just started doing it without even like asking. He just started doing these crazy bendy synth bass sounds. I remember just sitting up and like jaw dropped, and, and he immediately took the song to another place that I never saw it going before, and I w- I remember it was the most excited I'd ever been about <laughs> anything we'd written or recorded. Like I was just. I was I couldn't imagine the song going to that place and so then we just started really going in like then we we're like wait okay now that the song can go here because at that moment in time it was just going to maybe be acoustic guitar and singing it like filtered out then he started doing these synth sounds and then um our friend Julian who's an amazing musician and, and like violinist uh who lives in the same uh house as Cole came into the studio and 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 like did one take a violin um to do on it we're like just play whatever just like we ended up we wanted the the end like 1980s end up being this kind of like collage of sounds at the end that just sound like beautiful but also kind of haunting and and yeah could could almost feel like like they have horror film elements but while remaining like beautiful in a way so like just play whatever and he just started playing all these like false harmonic stuff on the violin and i remember john was like it was funny because John was like, man, like, it's always kind of scary when a band is like, we're going to bring in our friend to play violin. And, 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 and John's like, oh, God, okay, you know. But then, but then Julian comes in. Remember, he did this take, and then John was just like, really, he was saying to Julian, he was like, really, really amazing playing, man, like, such great technique, like, all this stuff. And I was like, yes, you go, <laughs> yeah, Julian. Julian yeah, like, yeah, like, Because yeah, yeah, he came in and, did these. he made up all those false harmonic violin parts on the spot. And I remember just being like, oh. God, this is so good. And another interesting, fun, this is an interesting, weird fact, but what was the singer of the Cranberries' name? I feel uh, so. Doris O'Reardon. Yeah, the, the day that she actually passed away was the day we did the, the strings for that song. And in the song, Julian coincidentally did a line that's in Linger. He goes, da na 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 na. He does that. And he had no idea. He was just improvising. And it's in the song somewhere deep inside. Like, it's like, very similar. And I just remember that blowing my mind because I was like, oh my gosh, because that's one of my favorite songs ever made, Linger. And um, the fact that there was like a very similar part on that day is really interesting to me. And just, I mean, rest in peace to her, but I don't know. There's very interesting fact yeah, as well. Yeah. This time, John had some insight on how he helped contribute to the song. On, on 1980s horror film, I really encouraged it to sound like uh, Braden just singing the song in his bedroom and then like, you know, we would have these sort of like interstitial sounds that were kind of coming in and out 
that would just sort of create an atmosphere. But ultimately, I wanted the song to just kind of sound like a dude sitting on his bed singing the song. I, I do remember kind of pushing that agenda. And I remember I made a few lyric suggestions on that song that ended up in the song. Um, one of them being, uh, she was only 17. I suggested the next lyric be, why are all, all, all girls in song 17? Because the original lyric was, uh, she was 17 and you know what I mean, or something like, it was like, like, I was like, that's a Beatles song. It's already, that lyric's already been taken. But, you know, like once I pointed it out, I was like, we got to do something different there. They're like, oh, you're right. You know, cause it, it's just been kind of a placeholder for them. And so at some point I said, how about she was only 17? Why are girls in songs always 17? I said it because I, I, because I thought that that would actually be a great way to start the song. Because like, you know, kind of like a self-referential thing, you know, like what, why, why are we always singing about some girls when they're 17? I asked if there was any struggles with recording the record, but apparently all there really was was struggling to get things in the hoop. What was really exciting for us also was recording at Sunset Sound. You know, like that being such a legendary studio. We recorded in Studio 3 where Prince did his stuff, like Purple Rain. Insane. Yeah, um, one of the best studios on earth. Oh, it's like, it was incredible. And he, um, Prince installed, I'm pretty sure, the basketball hoop that's at Sunset Sound. So much fun. So just in between, yeah. whenever John would go and comp something together after we do something, we'd go outside and just play horse. And like, I would get slayed by Brayden. Like, play, Brayden's just way so too good at next basketball. Level of basketball compared <laughs> um, we actually got a couple guy. balls stuck on the roof of Sunset Sound. They're probably still, and there's a <laughs> still picture, up there. The, the funniest thing I'd say, one of the funniest things, is there's a picture of me throwing the basketball, and I look just like the Led Zeppelin swan <laughs> symbol guy. It's insane. We're, we'll show you after. Uh, we're show you. Like, maybe we need podcast stars. It's insane. No, yeah, it's, um, it's really funny. But yeah, and also, me and John, we, we all have so many inside jokes with them, so that was fun too. Let's talk about the LP they're going to do next. I wanted to get into a little discussion about what we could expect from it. I mean, I feel like there's just always going to be lots of influences that go into our music. And I feel like there'll be inherently, again, like a lot of taste tester kind of things going on in the album, too. Just because there's so much listen music that we listen to and that inspires us that it, I think a lot of those sounds are going to come out in our music unintentionally and intentionally. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I think we learned like how we learned particularly that we want to f like focus on certain things more than others now in the studio. Like we will sit down and like work on a guitar tone for an hour. And especially cause we'll have more time on our upcoming like album session. You know what I mean? Drum because sounds, it's, like, the whole yeah, yeah, like have more time to sit down and figure it out and don't be, and, and to not be wrapped up in your head of what you think it should sound like, just let it find itself and experiment and don't be afraid to experiment for a long period of time or go with a gut decision. Like it's just, there's, it, I know I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm very much contradicting myself. It, it goes hand in hand though. Like you, you just, you, there's just certain little things. And even in like in mixing how you want to approach something differently or it just give, you know, it, it's also like another thing that happened on the EP is we, we, we wrote a lot of these songs um, in Logic on Cole's laptop. So all the parts we would write on like a little MIDI keyboard like as a drum part or we plug in a guitar DI and just do that and that kind of stuff. And like we ended up writing the songs by layering things on Logic. So a lot of the parts, mo all the parts we knew we wanted to play and we ended up falling in love with a lot of sounds 
And so we went into the EP having, which is, which is good, you know, having a very clear vision of what we wanted all these songs to sound like, but can also be a detriment because like now this time we're more interested in going in and like our demos that we're making right now sounds so plain and so bad. So we can go in and intentionally just like let the sounds fly themselves and surprise us instead of having an exact idea of what we want them to sound like. And have John have more of a helping hand. Yes. Have John really build the songs up as well. Like John is because John's doing our album as well, and John it and John is like a a mastermind as anyone who knows him knows. The EP process was great, but like we want to even this time let him just like put his hands on it more and just like be like you know surprise us with this sound. We have no idea what we want this to sound like. Just please. Help surprise us and like just find it together you know our, our whole mindset in the ep has its ups and downs i mean we love how it turned out and like but we're just like oh let's approach this a little differently this time just for fun and just i think we'll ultimately be more surprised and more and happier um by having a product that we didn't expect one thing that won't be changing on their lp is they are all comfortable playing any instrument they want to play on a song they explain it a little bit more here. Cole usually handles all the drums. Yeah, that's he's the one. He's the best drummer. Yeah, I drum, I, and they sing. Yeah, yeah. I want to dabble in drums one day on something. That'd you be should, fun. Dude. That'd be really fun, because we all play drums as well. But no, like, Cole played a lot of the keyboard parts. Uh, I played a lot of the keyboard parts. Don't play all the keyboard parts. Slash guitar Color parts. Guitar. You guys did all the bass. Yeah, me and Dylan did the bass. You didn't do any bass, Cole? No. Because no. oh, you did drums. You tracked yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we all we all just kind of uh, shape shift around, kind of float around. That's what's cool about like we we didn't want, we don't want Wallows to be like your classic band per se. That like we have this drummer and this guitar player and singer and this guitar player singer and this bass player. Bass player. Like we just want it to be this collective of we just want to be a collective of people that just make the music and write the music. It has nothing to do with what parts we play or what parts we sing or right or whatever we just can contribute whatever we want equally which is exciting because i remember when we went to do pictures of girls there's like this really high ringy guitar part that's on the record and um i was in there with john and i was like cole can you just go play it and get like get the sounds i, I just want to hear it back and he starts playing and i'm like oh uh, yeah just record it yeah, <laughs> so then yeah. i was in there listening so i could like listen to it and be like oh no do this do this and then it was done. I'm like, cool, cool. You played the lead guitar part. Awesome. And then, like, that's how it is on the, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And then he it's got cool. to be in the room and hear the sounds through the monitor. So it was like, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely like mutually beneficial all around for all of us to play all the instruments. Yeah. And there's a yeah. part, yeah. And like a part that I play live, it'd be like, Brayden, I just don't feel like playing this right now. You just do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, it's whatever. That's that vibe. Yeah. yeah. I think it's always interesting with a band that's as unique as Wallows to find out what the people who are closest to them think makes them unique. So I asked John Congleton and Katie Green about what they think makes the group special. I'll tell you what I think is unique about them in regards to how things are now. I think in a lot of ways they remind me of bands from 20, 30 years ago where they feel more like an actual band where everybody has like pretty equal stay. Uh, nowadays, a lot of things are one person's vision. You know, they even kind of write everything and record everything themselves a lot of times. That, there's a lot of that now. And that 20, 30 years ago, that was much more of a novel thing. And the more norm was to have a band with like three or four people who all kind of had equal votes. Uh, bands were just kind of more of a thing 20, 30 years ago. The way I see things going, they're kind of more novel now because they actually are like three people who really, really 
listen to each other and take everything into consideration. It's like sometimes with, with a band nowadays, it's like the drummer or the bass player or whomever might have an opinion, but it's sort of only given 20% reverence compared to somebody else's opinion. Uh, whereas with these guys, you know, they're, they're really, they're really legitimately good friends and they legitimately are doing this as a unit. And, and that's refreshing to me. I don't, I just don't see that as much nowadays. That's a young band who were raised on indie music and draw influences from everyone from the Strix to the Smiths to the Cure to the Killers, Arctic Monkeys. Um, I think it's really cool that they're sort of um, making their way into the mainstream, hopefully, knock on wood. But Really, it's it's going to be interesting to see this generation or their generation um, and how they sort of develop into music because it's all about hip hop right now. Hip hop and pop are dominating, whereas like early 2000s strokes and, you know, the killers and, you know, all these other the hives, all these garage rock bands were just killing it in the mainstream and you know my greatest hope is for a rock and roll revival so i really i think it's cool that they're sort of paving the way for that Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share it on social media. To hear other episodes and more of Atlantic's podcasts, head to AtlanticPodcast.com. Wallow's Spring EP is out now. Thanks, and tune in next time.